Well, we're here. We've made it to the end of the story in Esther, and it finishes just how we want it, doesn't it? It's a good turnaround, an unlikely success, a victory from nowhere. God's people are happy. It's just one of the things you love to see, isn't it? A victory from nowhere. Whether it's the individual who pulled together a team to sue Apple on the grounds that they were deliberately slowing down their iPhones, who won his battle in court, despite the unlikely circumstances of trying to sue Apple. Or when the good guy wins in a film, when it looked like the odds were completely stacked against them. Or last weekend, when Swansea City reached the championship playoffs, coming from nowhere on the last day, they needed a six-goal swing with something like 30 minutes to go left of the season. It was genius. We love to see it, don't we? A, a turnaround, a victory from nowhere, an unlikely success. But as we look at Esther, is this really a turnaround that fills us with the same joy that Mordecai and the Jews have? What about the uncomfortable descriptions of people being killed? What do we do about that? Well, this evening we're going to see that that God turns the tables by rescue through judgment. Firstly, then we'll see God turns the tables. Remember where we're at in our story last week? Haman, the enemy of the Jews, was impaled on a massive pole that they'd prepared to kill Mordecai. So we're at a point in the story before now where the villain is on a 75-foot stick and we're thinking, brilliant, the story is over. God's people are safe. But look back to how our story this evening resumes. Look at verse 3. There's an outstanding issue. Esther pleaded with, again, pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. That's not what we expected. Why is Esther weeping? Well, because although Haman has been dealt with, Haman's been killed, his edict still stands. God's people are still sentenced to death. So what's he going to do about this outstanding issue? What's Esther going to do? Well, verse 7, she goes to the king and she cries out, how can I bear to see disaster on my people? But verse 8, here's the nub of the issue. Any law that's signed and sealed by the king and his ring can't just be retracted. This is what verse 8 says. Now, write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. It just can't be cancelled even though Haman's dead. So we're left at the beginning of this evening's story with this outstanding issue. And we see how it's dealt with. There's a clear reversal. It's a really clear reversal. Here's Mordecai's edict, verse 9, that we read this evening. Is essentially what it says. The royal secretaries are summoned. The orders go to the Jews, to the satraps, governors and nobles. 
the orders are written in the script of each province and the language of each people. Mordecai wrote then in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring. They're sent by mounted couriers and the order is to destroy, kill and annihilate anyone who opposes the Jews. They're the details of the edict. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Well, here, let's have a look at Haman's original edict that still stands that we see in chapter three, coming up on the screen. The royal secretaries were summoned in each script of each of the provinces and language of each people. It goes to the king's satraps, the governors, the, pro the various provinces and the nobles of each of the various peoples. It's written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with his own ring. It's dispatched with, uh, by those same couriers and the order is to destroy, kill and annihilate. Do you see what's going on here? There is a clear reversal. The symmetry is remarkable. The details are exactly the same. It is a clear reversal. A little bit later on, the phrase is used, the tables are turned. And you see, that's exactly what's happened. The tables are turned. But that's a passive description of what's going on. It doesn't name the agent the means by which the tables are turned and it doesn't and of course we see it through the book of Esther it, it can't have done because the detail clearly shows that it is God who turns the tables it is God again at work behind the scenes to reverse these clear details but you see you can imagine can't you Esther and Mordecai at points through the story crying out to God at points where it seems like it's all over, when Haman's promoted or when the first edict is signed. Haman and, uh, sorry, Mordecai and Esther, surely they'd be crying out to God saying, why aren't you doing anything? Surely this can't be in your plan. The beginning of the chapter, Esther's weeping because she can't bear to see disaster fall on the Jews all along the way in our story we could pick out moments and say surely god shouldn't let that happen but when we zoom out when we look across the whole story we see that there's an intricate plan while up close in in the moments of the story it might have felt like a mess it might look like a mess it might look like god's not there when we see the bigger picture, it all makes sense. And it can be a bit like that with our lives. When decisions don't go our way, when there's tragedy, injustice or struggle for us to deal with, we can think and maybe even cry out, it's not possible that this is in God's plan. But it's a bit like those magic eye books and posters don't know if you remember them, they were all the rage in the 90s. I remember sitting down at my grandparents' house for what felt like hours, desperate to see the picture. And I never seemed to get it. If you're not familiar with the books, they're essentially a pattern like the one coming up on the screen. And the idea is that if you get your perspective right, you can see the picture going on behind the pattern. I never, ever seemed to get it. 
I just couldn't see what was going on. It was so frustrating. My dad just had to take his glasses off and straight away you could see the picture behind the pattern. The reality is you can get lost in the detail of the pattern. But when you adjust your eyes to see the bigger picture, you can see that there is a picture behind the pattern. And so the book of Esther, it encourages us to view life with a, a magic eye kind of perspective. To recognize that while at times it might feel like there's no bigger picture, we can trust that God is in complete control. And we can train ourselves actually to see beyond the, the details, see beyond our current circumstances. What can be really helpful is to look back and see how God's been faithful to his people in the past. To see how God's kept his promises through the Bible and even how God's been faithful to us. See, the intricate details that are reversed in Esther are testament to a God who is clearly at work behind the scenes to turn the tables. And when we recognise the details for us that might have felt all-consuming in the past that God's dealt with, we're reminded of a God who's still now at work behind the scenes. And that'll mean when we face a next crisis, when we're met with tragedy, we don't need to completely despair. Because although our current circumstances might feel all-consuming, we can trust in a God who is at work behind the scenes, who time and time again is at work to rescue his people. Because he is at work behind the scenes and here he is rescuing his people. But you could read the book of Esther and fail to see that it is God who's at work behind the scenes. Remember, he's not mentioned, but he is clearly at work and he's at work by way of his rescue. God turns the tables by rescue. And here's how we see his rescue works. First, we see a very different verdict. Here's the verdict from the original edict in chapter three. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to, to, to destroy them. That's the verdict on God's people, the Jews. It's a verdict of complete destruction. But see here, the second verdict is a complete reversal. This is what chapter 8 verse 11 says. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them. See, it's a verdict of protection. It's a complete reversal from destruction to protection. See, God's remarkable rescue of his people means that the same king, the very same king that put the rubber stamp or the, the, the signet ring seal on the edict to say that God's people were to be destroyed, now is working to protect them. The verdict has been altered. Destruction to protection. It's a very different verdict and it's met with a very different response of God's people. This is how Mordecai responded when he heard in chapter four, 
when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Mordecai wore sackcloth and was wailing because the verdict was destruction. He was mourning for God's people. But look, verse 15 and 17. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. To the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. See the reversal from sackcloth to royal garments, from wailing to joyous celebrations, from people wallowing in the streets to people feasting and celebrating. That's the joy that comes with God's rescue. It's a very different response. And you see, if the book were to finish there, we'd probably be quite happy. What a lovely book. God's at work to turn the tables to rescue his people. But God's rescue goes hand in hand with God's judgment. And maybe as we read through, that's where the story became a little bit uncomfortable. Does it really have to happen this way? Aren't the Jews just taking revenge here? Has Esther gone too far, returning to the king a second time to kill more people? What does that tell us about how God deals with people today? Well, God turns the tables by rescue through judgment, and they do go hand in hand. And it shouldn't surprise us, because time and time again in the Old Testament, we see that. You see, Noah, God's rescue is effective as judgment is pronounced on human wickedness. You look at the Israelites, God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt as his judgment falls on the Egyptians. God delivers the Israelites into the promised land as his judgment falls on the Canaanites. Time and time again, God protects his people by defeating his enemies. That's what we see here in this great rescue in Esther. God's people have gone from facing destruction to being protected. In order to do that, God must defeat those who stand against him. Do you remember in the big picture of the Bible, we said that God's promises looked at one stage in the book of Esther like they were under threat. God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he'd have many descendants. And for for a point, it looked like the Jews' entire existence on the face of the planet was under threat. But here's what it says in, in Genesis 12. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And you see what's going on here in keeping with the covenant. Did you notice the detail in verse 17? And many people of other nationalities became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. People are blessed through them as they turn to trust in God but also in keeping with God and his covenant, those who stand against his people and in doing so stand against God and refuse to turn, they will be cursed. And maybe you're thinking, well, okay, logically that that makes sense. God must do that. But look at this story. It's pretty barbaric, isn't it? Maybe you're thinking it's just not fair that 
God would allow this killing? Well, look at chapter 8, verse 11. What's the actual purpose of the edict? The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder their property of their enemies. God is giving his people rest from their enemies. And it makes it so, so clear that these people, they're not just innocent bystanders. The Jews aren't going around killing indiscriminately. Chapter 9, verse 1 says it's this, those who hated them. Chapter 9, verse 2 says to attack those determined to destroy them. Chapter 9, verse 5 says the Jews struck down all their enemies. Chapter 9, verse 16 says to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. Do you see, the real shock in this chapter is not that so many people are killed. The real shock is that so many people are absolutely resolute on wiping God's people off the face of the planet. Despite the warning, despite the law being passed, despite even being given time to change their mind, they are set on destroying God's people. They are enemies of God and God executes his judgment. And we see now that in the big picture of God's rescue of his people for all time, God turns the tables by rescue through judgment. See, every single one of us at once was God's enemy, acting as though he wasn't in control, choosing to live for ourselves, rejecting his right place as the king of the universe. And because of that, his right pronouncement of justice is judgment. When we die, we will stand before God in judgment. But see, his great rescue plan for all time, for his people, is provided in Jesus. God turns the tables by rescue through judgment. When you and I deserve God's judgment, he turns the tables. He provides a rescuer, Jesus, to come and take the judgment that I deserve. So that when we stand before him on that final day, if we trust in his rescue plan for ourselves, then we'll go to be with him forever on account of his rescue through judgment. But in order for God's rescue to be effective, his judgment must be enacted. The very thing that we're rescued from, the result of rebellion against God, must be dealt with. And that means unless we trust in Jesus' rescue, then we will remain God's enemies and we must face God's judgment. And that is a terrifying reality. Here's what Colossians 1 verse 21 says. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Do you see, we were enemies, 
God turns the tables by rescuing us, bringing us back near to him through judgment as Jesus dies in our place. That's the brilliant news of the gospel. That's the brilliant news of the whole Bible. God is a God of rescue. So the book of Esther ends. Esther and Mordecai are having a feast of thanksgiving of this great rescue. Mordecai is honoured. Everyone is happy. But the obvious reality is that this isn't the ultimate act of rescue in the whole Bible story. God's yet to enact his ultimate judgment for all time. And actually, we live in a time now that we sometimes refer to as a now but not yet time. Because, Jesus is re- because the rescue plan in Jesus has been revealed, but not every injustice has yet been ultimately dealt with. Did you notice this little detail of the story? I think this is brilliant. Look at chapter 8, verse 9. This is when the edict is issued. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. This is when the edict is then enacted and the people go out and kill. Chapter 9, verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. Do you see there's nine months between it being issued and enacted? Nine months for the people to change their mind. And many did. We heard that many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. That's a a little picture of the the time that we live in today. God's rescue is being pronounced. The ultimate rescue plan was Jesus' work on the cross, and that is complete and effective. But he's yet to call all things to an end. He has not yet pronounced final judgment. So as we close, that means two things for us. Firstly, there's still injustice present in the world that we'll experience. That injustice will only be dealt with fully and finally when Jesus comes back. That might be of particular concern to you if you're a victim, if you're genuinely upset, upset, unsettled by some injustice. Well, Jesus will come back and he will judge. That's a good thing. But very generally speaking, the reason the picture of God's pronouncement of judgment here in these chapters is so uncomfortable is that actually we're pretty comfortable. Maybe we need to be more aware of injustice in this world. There is horrendous things going on that must be dealt with. And they will. Because while there is still injustice now, that time will run out. And they will be dealt with. And secondly, there is still time for people to come to trust in God's saving rescue plan. See, the picture of pronouncement of God's judgment is uncomfortable to us because we know it's what we deserve for not treating God as we should. And we know it's a reality for those that we deeply care about 
who don't trust in Jesus. But here's what 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some understand slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, God's not slow in enacting his justice and judgment. God is gracious in holding off on this execution of judgment because he wants people to come and trust in this saving rescue plan. He was patient with people just like me and you to allow people to trust in his great rescue plan. So as we come to the close our time in the book of Esther, the challenge is, do you trust in the God who turns the tables by rescue through judgment? Have you given your life to him and seek to trust him, even when it's not clear just how it is he is at work behind the scenes? Are you holding on to him as the only hope for real rescue? And are you holding out the good news of Jesus, the great rescuer that many might come to trust in him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are a good God. We thank you that you are a God that must judge. But Father, we thank you so much that you are a God that loves to rescue. Father, please, would you help us to trust in your great rescue plan for your people? And Father, please, would many more people turn to trust in you? Amen.